Hello and welcome to Some Other Sphere, a podcast exploring our strange world, one conversation at a time, hosted by Rick Palmer. My guests for this episode are folklorists, paranormal researchers and authors Timothy Renner and Joshua Cutchin, who join me to talk about their new co-written work, Where the Footprints End, High Strangeness and the Bigfoot Phenomena, Volume 1, Folklore. The book details Tim and Josh's extensive research exploring the multitude of similarities between Bigfoot encounters and the folklore of other 14 entities such as fairies, aliens, witches and ghosts. The connections they have found are numerous and offer a compelling counter-argument to the hypothesis that Bigfoot is simply a flesh-and-blood creature, an as-yet-undiscovered great ape or relic hominid. It's an exploration into the myriad oddities of the Bigfoot phenomena, the high strangeness mentioned in the title, and has been compared to the work Jack Belay has done writing about the true nature of UFOs. Both Tim and Josh have written extensively on a wide range of paranormal topics, and are some of the most interesting voices in 14 Research right now, so it was a real treat to get them on the podcast to talk about their latest work. Enjoy! Tim and Josh, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having us. Absolutely. Uh, you're very welcome. I'm a huge fan of both your work, so it's great to have you on as guests. To start off with, just tell us a little bit about how you both became interested in the Bigfoot phenomenon. Well, uh, I'd like to say I grew up in, in the golden age of Bigfoot. So I was born in 1970, a couple years, well, three years, I guess, after the Patterson-Gimlin film was filmed. And then in search of was on tv when i was a kid with the, their bigfoot episodes and legend of boggy creek came out and that was you know in drive-ins i never saw it in a drive-in but uh, then they would play it on tv and stuff and seemed to be this like pop culture speaking uh, this kind of golden age of bigfootery where it was uh sort of in the air you know there's bigfoot toys and bigfoot was a character on uh the uh, six million dollar man tv show and and so forth and I, it just really fascinated me as a kid because I was always into, you know, I was, I was into monsters and horror movies and comic books and science fiction and all that, but I was really, really drawn to the stuff that was, that was real or that was supposed to be real. So stuff that later on I would, I would learn was called folklore. But when I was a kid, I didn't know what it was, but someone would tell me about, you know, a ghost story and and I would want to go to the place where, where the story took place you know, whatever local ghost stories there were. I was just always fascinated by the stuff that, that people said was real and, and was not fiction. So Bigfoot just really kind of fired uh, those interests for me, I think. And uh, I fell out of it. You know, when I was a teenager, I got into girls and punk rock and didn't have time for Bigfoot. But uh, when I settled down as an adult and you know, kind of came back to it, started looking on the internet, like, I wonder what's going on in that world and uh, got uh, fascinated by it once more and eventually started writing some books and doing a podcast. And now it's uh, kind of part of my everyday life. Cool. Josh, how about you? I think that it was always going to be an interest of mine. I was always a monster kid, you know, anything that was a creature feature on TV would always have my interest. And uh, so, you know, I was checking out books on, on Bigfoot at an early age, probably my first, you know, real paranormal love. Um, ghosts seemed kind of, I don't want I don't want to say mundane, but you know, my worldview certainly accommodated them. Um, I found out years later that apparently my dad was like subscribe to the Bigfoot Field Researchers Organization newsletter and like remember <laughs> remember the uh, Argosy magazine coming out with the Minnesota Iceman in it and stuff. So probably it was probably in my blood to a certain degree. Um, but, uh, you know, after that, I just continued, uh, you know, really sort of nur- nurturing my Bigfoot interest and, uh, you know, through the works of Jeff Meldrum and folks like that. And uh, it was actually a Bigfoot book, uh, J. Robert Alley's Rinko Sasquatch, which is a great book that sort of kick-started uh, my writing career, I guess. I hesitate to call it a career, but my writing career in this, this, this these fields as well. So, uh, yeah, it's just, it's been my first love, even though I hadn't really devoted a lot of writing to it. Until Tim came along sometime in 
late 20, good Lord, late 2018, I guess. And uh, said, hey, we need to write a book about weird Bigfoot. I'm like, that's an awful lot to wrap your hands around. But uh, and I was I had actually was actually going to give myself a little bit of a break from writing because I had two twins on the way. Um, so, yeah, uh, <laughs> here we are. <laughs> uh, he, he pushed me and I'm like, no, we're, we're going to do this. We're going to do this right now. And uh, I crammed as much research in as quickly as I could. You know, I'm starting working on a new book right now and I have no idea how I how I crammed as much in there as I, as I did as quickly as I did, because the research time for this flipped around and I would say probably about four or five months. Um, and, uh, but you know, perhaps it's because I'd been sort of percolating on a lot of these oddities for years and years and years. And at the time, you know, as a kid trying to reconcile these oddities with the idea of it being a flesh and blood creature. And now that I'm, you know, full on in this, uh, you know, Jungian, Patrick Harper, Jacques Vallée kind of soup. Um, only, only now do those outliers make some degree of, you know, hesitate to call it sense, but some degree of, of consistency throughout the phenomena. Right. Yeah. So was there something in particular, a, a case, a Bigfoot case that represented the ideas that you wanted to put into the book perfectly, where you thought this for me makes it seem that Bigfoot definitely isn't just a flesh and blood creature. Well, for me, and I'm sure that Tim has a, a different take on it, but for me, it was just the number of uh, the number of sort of elaborate backflips that the cryptozoological establishment has has tried over the past several decades, trying to fit all these outliers into this one model. You know, so like three-toed foot footprints, and people say Bigfoot disappears before their eyes, and all this different stuff. Um, that really caught my interest. That, and you know, a lot of the similarities that I saw between uh, old world witch folklore and fairy folklore. You know, fairy folklore being one of my—I um, hesitate to say—specialities. I should—I should hesitate saying hesitate to say. <laughs> Thinking back how much <laughs> I'm saying that, but um, you know, just something that I've always been really interested in seeing those similarities and saying there must be something else to it. I don't think for me it was a specific case. Now with Tim, that might be a little bit different. I don't know that it was a specific case, but it was the the shared weird stuff throughout multiple cases that really got me thinking uh you know so when when people are reporting you know weird lights and bigfoot or people are reporting um the the one that really got me uh, is uh climbing on roofs because you people would talk about them climbing on the roof and and it's such a bizarre thing because there's no, there's no roof damage that that I know of that's ever reported with you know, and, and you're supposed to have a, you know, nine hundred thousand pound creature running across your roof, and you know, I, I've even talked to witnesses who live in tiny little houses, who've told me that you know Bigfoot was up on top of their roof, and I'm sitting there looking at their roof, and I'm saying, well, where you know if he's, if he's running across your roof. You see, there should be some marks or damage or something because you know these things are uh, ostensibly huge. So it, just these weird things that were popping up, you know, the, the same kinds of weird things that were popping up in these different cases. The number of people who, again, like local witnesses that I talked to who would tell me their Bigfoot stories. And then whenever we were done discussing that, they'd mention uh, their house was haunted. Like, okay, all right, that's that's strange. And it's, you know... A huge percentage of these people so it was wasn't necessarily one specific case but like i said the the weird things that were popping up in, in all these different cases right yeah because I, I know in the book that you talk about the connections between bigfoot and other paranormal phenomena like ufos and ghosts and even women in white which i found was a something i hadn't even thought of i didn't even know that those cases existed <laughs> I, I don't think that anyone did until this point, but they do. I mean, I'm very confident in, in my research that it's just, just, it's there. It's explicitly there in the folklore and in, uh, in modern cases as well. So when you decided to collaborate to write the book, how did you work out how best to do that? What do you guys think that you both bring to the shared work? Well, I think, um, you know, we're, we're both comparative folklorists, uh, we are both doing that already in our own way. Uh, I think we are doing it a little bit differently, but we are you know, approaching it in a very similar way. 
uh, we both love folklore, so so we love looking at at that side of things. As far as uh, uh, volume one is is just packed with it, um, but uh, so you know, I, I I got along with Josh. I knew it was somebody I could work with. Of course, um, now now after this book, we might not get along <laughs> anymore. <laughs> I, we still get along. We might not write another uh, two volume set together. But we still get along. <laughs> That's true. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I, 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 I've uh, I would I will raise Josh's children if he needs me to. But I don't know that we'll write another two. two yeah, that's a good together. <laughs> that's a good way to put it. <laughs> what, but, what, would uh, to, what would have happened to Josh? <laughs> taken by Bigfoot. Yeah, yeah. But, uh, right. but uh, and this book is a very different. So I, I kind of played with the idea i kind of started vaguely started this before i contacted josh about it and it would have been a very different book and it would have taken a different form uh but i knew josh was somebody i could work with i knew he was somebody whose ideas i liked and whose writing i liked and i thought well i'm this is going to take me years and years and years and it's going to take me exponentially longer if i do it by myself i need i need help and uh, josh had just kind of finished up uh, uh thieves in the night his his uh previous book and doing the press on that and i just reached out to him i said josh you you want to do this and and he he heartily agreed thankfully and and to his credit he the the form the book finally took was was probably uh way more josh's influence than mine if i had done it my way it would have been a different book but i think it the the form it took is the the form it needed to be so I'm very happy for that. And uh, as far as how we thought, I mean, I think we, the original goal was us like for us both to write every chapter, like we would bounce it back and forth and we would add stuff and take away. And again, it just became a time issue where it, if we did that, it was just going to draw it out more and more. And it just became more economical time-wise uh, for us each to just kind of jump on our own chapters and then, the, uh, you know, the, uh, we each read each other's chapters and we'd offer suggestions and so forth. But uh, I think initially it was going to be much more, you know, I write a paragraph, he writes a paragraph, we kind of jam them together. And uh, in the end, we just kind of went off on our, down our own little paths and then, uh, you know, would meet up and expand and change and, and then go off on our own again. Yeah, I can't imagine writing this by myself. Can you, Tim? No. <laughs> I mean, holy no, cow. I, like, like, like I said in a previous interview, there, there has to be a, a, I'm sure there's a formula for when you're working with other people, uh, you know, two people can get exponentially more work done than, than, than just one person, you know, doing twice as much work. There's, there's somehow, it, you know, there's a, there's a formula for that, I'm sure, uh, because it just went a lot faster. I mean, when, when you're talking about how fast you turned around the research, I was just, I was kind of thinking in my head while you're saying that, like, yeah, we really kind of knocked out this research. Now, some of that is there's a lot more weird stuff with Bigfoot, I think, than even we thought there would be before we got into this. Hmm. So it wasn't that hard to find examples of this stuff. No, definitely, because I know, I mean, Tim, you've you've written a number of books about Bigfoot, and did this book feel like a a natural progression from your other work? And and Josh, the same. Did, does this feel like a something that was bound to happen? based on your research for the other books that you'd written? Well, I think it's part of the beauty of it is that uh, I think that Tim's chapters are an extension of what he was into, and my chapters are an extension of, of, of mine as well. I mean, I, I, you know, again, coming back to that fairy folklore thing and just being mired in all this old world stuff, um, I saw a lot of those similarities, but I didn't see some of the similarities that Tim was seeing because Tim is much more of a boots-on-the-ground fieldwork kind of guy than I am. Um, so I think that, uh, I think that I would have kept on teasing out the contents of my chapters in this book throughout my other work, but in terms of having like a one-stop shop for weird Bigfoot, uh, I don't think it would have ever come together quite like this. Hmm. Cool. So moving on to the book, there's a chapter where you talk about Josh, it's one that you write called the wilderness Geist, And I know that this is a concept that you guys have talked about a lot on Tim on your podcast and Josh on when you've been on other podcasts as well. Uh, could we just talk a little bit about this concept? Because it seems like it's something that really represents what you're trying to get across in the book. 
it was it was it was such a popular idea that uh, that Tim took Tim stole my name for <laughs> no he he asked for permission um no this is something that like a lot of people had had noticed so a lot of my work I think tends to be taking like this consistent paragraph that shows up in a lot of other books and whatnot that people will remark on and then move on, but they won't really tease out the implications of it. And uh, this is sort of a good example of that, the way that a lot of these Bigfoot encounters, uh, what the BFRO would call class B encounters, uh, things where behavior and activity seems to be very suggestive of a Bigfoot or a Sasquatch being around, but one isn't seen. Um, People, you know, so you, t- you take those and you change the setting and the context completely changes in terms of what's happening. So these Class B reports are, you know, thrown stones that are often warm to the touch, you know, raps and knockings in the forest, footprints, odd voices, strange sounds, things like that. And you put that inside a house and all of a sudden you've got a poltergeist phenomena. And like I said, some cryptozoologists had mentioned this before, but they hadn't really taken that down the road to... It's eventual conclusion, which in my mind was, you know, where's the, where are the two places that you hear about poltergeists? Well, around adolescence and in seances. And would you believe it? There are some pretty prominent people who recorded uh, things in seances appearing that were large man-like creatures that were covered in hair. You know, the man monkeys and Neanderthal-like entities. And you know, to say nothing of the amount of uh, hairy hands that would grab people during seances. So, you know, to me sort of cross-pollinating these things and seeing the connections between them is, is what I really live for when I write uh, anything in the, in the paranormal. Hmm. And Tim, what do you think about this? As someone who does more boots on the ground research, is, have you encountered this sort of phenomena? Uh, what specifically? What phenomena specifically? Sorry, just like the stone throwing and, and things oh, like that. Sorry. Oh, yeah, yes. Yeah, that was actually sort of my um i like to compare it to the the zen monks who said they you know they've reached enlightenment when they got slapped upside the head um i i had a, my own personal experience that was uh it was very wilderness geisty and uh i was telling the story for the first time on the where did the rogo podcast and there were things like wood knocks and bad smells and and uh a, a oppressive uh feeling of fear uh associated with this and and i was discussing it very much as if this was a class b you know bigfoot encounter and uh the the host of the show uh sarai Azkath and and josh happened to be there as well they both pointed out that these things i was experiencing if if i was inside a house it would be called poltergeist activity and it was literally like this this moment where I got slapped upside the head, and honestly, that's that moment where they said that because it it rang true for me. It, you know, I, I'm thinking Bigfoot, 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 and they said, "Well, hold on a minute," and they you know they present this sort of different way of looking at things. You know, you, you sidestep something, you get a different view. That moment was probably the the very seed for for where the footprints end. Quite honestly, that that was probably the moment. I kind of stepped away and thought, oh, I need to look at all of this from a different angle. Mm. And I think that's the greatest sin, really, of a lot of paranormal research is this unwillingness or perhaps willful self-deception to to not look at the similarities between these different things. I mean, we all want to silo ourselves off and say that the Bigfoot people are crazy if we're into UFOs, the UFO people are crazy if we're into ghosts or whatnot and really i mean we're all in terms of the population at large we're all just a bunch of kooks Um, (laughs) and and there's so many similarities between these different you know on the face of it disparate phenomena uh that you you have to acknowledge that these venn diagrams definitely overlap uh in different ways if if not you know one shared circle which is kind of what i tend towards Mm. and with both being folklorists as well, do you find that when you research the folklore of an area, there are clues there as well in terms of what might be going on? And and actually, these ideas have they've been around for a while, but it's just it took you guys to repopularize them because I, I know that I'm I'm reading the the Secret Commonwealth at the moment, and that's mm. a really fascinating book. It's it's got some great ideas in it as well, and some great insights into those people who Robert Kirk spoke to. Do you, do you find that with your research that there were, there were clues there as to what might be going on? 
I don't know if it's, <laughs> I don't know if there are explanations the the, the folklore mm. it's in my mind, the, the way I sort of read it is it's, it's our ancestors telling us a, that this stuff existed and that they ran into it and, and sometimes be how to deal with it or the best ways they found to deal with it. Uh, it doesn't necessarily explain it, but when they, talk about right, things, yeah. I mean, to go back to what I was talking about before, like climbing on roofs, it's a very, very specific and odd thing. And then when you look at these modern Bigfoot reports that talk about it, but then go back and, you know, in the folklore, these different folkloric creatures, which, you know, they're not calling Bigfoot because they didn't use the name back then, but they're, they might be ogres or, or the Norse Draugr or um, all these different kind of, you know, various wild and, and, and hairy creatures and giant creatures and stuff that they have these odd details about them climbing on top of the roof. You know, a, a number of wild men, I mean, any number of wild men uh, under different names will climb on your roof, including Santa Claus is, is the uh, <laughs> most obvious one. He, he is, uh, they, there's a book called Santa Claus, Last of the Wild Men. He's, he's absolutely within the, the wild man tradition. Um, hard to think of today because he's, he's the, you know, he's the guy in the Coca-Cola ads, uh, the uh, jolly old elf or whatever, but uh, he was absolutely uh, a wild man or is, you know, he's connected to that tradition. But uh, yeah, so when you find things like that, it's like, boy, that is a really odd detail. And you start connecting these things to to these modern reports. Um, in volume two, I write a bit about uh, the phenomenon of eye glow, and in terms of Bigfoot, and you know, uh, many many witnesses report eye glow of, of different colors, and they're insistent that it's eye glow, not eye shine, and those are two different things. And and I can go into the differences if you want, but uh, in any case no animal on earth has glowing eyes but what you do find is these folkloric creatures reports of them with glowing eyes these these uh you know these other things these these supernatural creatures have glowing eyes so you know there's there's so many things in common that it's it's just you know a list as long as your arm if not well it's it's a list to you know two books long for sure hmm. I love the cover of, of volume one, Tim, you drew this and I can see that the, the Bigfoot on the cover has glowing eyes. And there's a few things in that picture that I'm, I'm interested about why you, why you chose those things for this book. That's a great question. Yeah, I'm eager to hear your, uh, cause you know, Tim and I talked about it a little bit, but I'm eager to hear Tim sort of dissect his, his, uh, his cover a little bit. Well, the, so I, I had done, I don't know how many original other illustrations for the cover and, to be honest, I, I knew they weren't there yet, but I was getting frustrated because I was just not finding it. And I had done one that, that, that Josh liked more than I did. And Josh was, was pretty excited about this particular uh, illustration. And it just wasn't there for me yet. And I was like, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. And I drew something else, which he didn't like as much. And I think I liked the, that one a little bit more. Yeah, I didn't like that one at all. <laughs> and, and Josh said, well... Well, the thing I liked about the other one is that, is that it, it felt sort of dangerous and it felt sort of like, like, like some, something was hidden there, you know, something, something occult in the true sense of the word, the, like something hidden. And that right then I kind of, I was like, okay, I know what I have to do. I know what I have to do. So we wanted something, I think that was suggestive of all the folkloric things without, you know, I didn't necessarily want to have Bigfoot you know, riding in a UFO and, and, uh, you, you know, wh whatever else, you know, just, so we wanted something that was suggestive. So, uh, the idea was to have these sort of natural symbols and certainly we've, we've connected Bigfoot with death and with witchcraft. So we wanted, you know, this feeling of, of, uh, you know, mystery and, and, and witchcraft and, and, uh, folklore with it. So, you know, it was just really a matter of, of assembling a, a group of, of images that kind of worked visually. Mm, cool. Yeah, it's, it's it's really great. Yeah, I know. I like the because there's a couple of deer skulls there and, and apples. And I'm, are, the, yeah. are the apples that they related to the gifting? Because I know you talk about that in the book. I, I you know, that was almost a, a a sort of nod to my personal experience. Um but uh, again, it's it's sort of the the 
tying in the idea of, of Bigfoot and death, certainly skulls are a representation of that. But uh, mm. I've had a, a very, very interesting run where I have found perfectly clean skulls on probably 80% of the paranormal investigations I've been on. Uh, it has been quite amazing. So so I had I had to throw some skulls in there. So the people who have kind of followed my journey will, will get the, the implication of those for sure. Right. Okay. And were those in, were those things schools that you found? Was that while you were doing field work? Yeah, yeah. I, I started. Is <laughs> I, I it's really not that much to do with with where the footprints are. And I get into this in uh, my previous book, "Don't Look Behind You." But I found a, a skull in a very strange situation uh, while I was by myself one day after I had seen something. I, I hesitate to say what it was. It, it may have you know it may have been. A, a big ghost. I don't know. I, I don't, I, I didn't see enough of it to say it was Bigfoot. It was something, something large in the woods that I followed and came upon a skull. But since that day, I have found skulls on an unreasonably large amount of these investigations I go on. And, and they're not, uh, I'm not crawling around through bushes looking for them. They seem to be in prominent areas right in the middle of paths or just kind of laying out on logs and, and so forth. And um, I've collected animal skulls since I was a little kid uh, because I, I like to draw them because I'm an artist and, and I find them in, interesting and so forth. And in the past, you know, a couple of years since this started happening, the, my, the amount of skulls I have is just massive. I mean, it's probably four or five times the amount I had before. Cause I just keep finding them. It's, it's, it's bizarre. And you know, I do not know the reason, but I, I it is, it's there. I mean, that I, I find skulls, it just happens. Is there a tradition at all? Uh, is that something that, that there's a folklore about? I don't, I mean, I haven't specifically found that with skulls. I, you know, I, I have talked to other people who said that, that you know, they find them uh, with some frequency as well. I, to me, I put it more into the phenomenon and, and not necessarily Bigfoot, I, I, the general phenomenon of the paranormal. I think sometimes it sort of uh, gives you what you want in a way. And it's, it's uh, very enticing and, and, and very strange. And it's, it's, you know, this is very, very, you know, woo to talk about. But uh, I, I think to me, it just comes down to that. Um, you know, perhaps if I collected rocks or crystals or something, I, I would get those. I, I don't know. <laughs> wow. No, it's, it's really interesting. Um, so, yeah, let's talk a little bit about the gifting chapter of the book, which you wrote, Tim. Can you just talk a little bit about, about that? Uh, I mean, uh, gifting is, it's this really amazing thing. And I, and, and a lot of people do it, uh, because it tends to get results and, and it gets interesting results. So for those who aren't familiar with, with the general idea is that, uh, people would leave out something f- for Bigfoot or ostensibly for Bigfoot, uh, food or, you know, usually it's food. Sometimes it can be, you know, something else, a, you know, a rock or, or a cairn of stones or something. And then it will they will, the Bigfoot, again, something, presumably Bigfoot, leaves them something in exchange. Maybe it's a, you know, a dead animal, uh, you know, a, a mole or, or, or something like this, or uh, a piece of uh, a broken toy that, that, you know, they picked up somewhere in the woods or whatever it is. Um, it's very, very fascinating. And a lot of the, the flesh and blood guys, uh, cryptozoologist guys would would warn against it and uh they would say uh for instance feeding them they would say don't don't do it because they the the animals would become dependent upon the calories and if if you break this apart i mean we're talking about a you know eight foot tall uh probably 800 pounds conservatively creature with a, a big brain from their behavior they have to be smart something that big you know a twinkie left on a tree stump a a candy bar you know left on a log is going to make no impact on its on its daily caloric needs i mean they would need to be eating constantly i did some research for the chapter about you know the caloric needs of of something that size and uh mountain gorillas basically if they're awake they're foraging and if they had a brain the size of ours they would need two hours more in the day than they have to feed the brain, to feed the, the 
besides brain, um, mm. we don't need to eat constantly because we cook our foods. So we process it and we get the most calorie, you know, the, the, the biggest bang for the calories out of it by processing, pre-processing the food by cooking it. So, uh, you know, as we don't have tons of stories, of, uh, there are some stories of Bigfoot using fire, which, you know, again, this goes in in another weird category. But in general, we don't have tons of stories of people, you know, walking through the woods and seeing Bigfoot cooking a rabbit over a campfire. We can assume that they are not cooking their food. And were they natural creatures, they, their, their caloric needs would be astounding and they would have to be eating constantly. So leaving out a little bit of food would not make any impact on the caloric needs of the creature. So the idea that they would become dependent upon this food uh, so the, the stories go that people would leave out food and then they would stop and then the creatures would, would go crazy. They would, they would, you know, start uh, harassing people or kill their pets or, or, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, so the idea that they would, you know, they're doing this because they grew dependent on those, those calories is, is, you know, borderline silly. So you start looking at other things. And another thing they would suggest is building a, a Bigfoot garden. So you have a garden and, and you, you think Bigfoot's coming in and raiding your garden. So we'll build a different garden separate from your garden close to the woods. And Bigfoot <laughs> will only eat from that garden because he will recognize that uh, this is this is his garden. He will appreciate this and he will leave your food alone. This is unlike any other animal in the world. The animals are caloric opportunists. If you did that, any other animal says, oh, I, now I have two places from which to pill for food. Thank you. So again, you get into this idea, well, why? If, if this is true, and, and so I'm, I'm believing what the witnesses are saying. I'm believing, I believe Bigfoot witnesses. So when I, when I kind of present this contrary evidence, it's, it's not to debunk the idea of Bigfoot. It's to... Th- to debunk the idea of Bigfoot as a natural animal. Mm. Uh, what they're doing, and, and you can look back in, in old folklore and, and find many, many examples of, of spirit gifting where people will leave gifts for brownies or they'll leave, you know, for, for these different, uh, you know, fairy creatures and so forth. And then they stop they forget, you forget to leave the brownie its milk and it, it kills your cow or it, uh, it tears up your house. It, it, it makes a mess out of your house. These are the same things people are reporting when they stop feeding Bigfoot. So, what you know in my mind what's happening is a form of spirit gifting you you are setting up by setting up a bigfoot garden you are setting up a dedicated area an offering area for these creatures by leaving out food on a stump you you are leaving out a you know it's just like uh leaving a bowl of milk out for for the fairies or milk and cookies for santa you know mm-hmm. there you go. it's a spirit offering and uh, certainly the 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 stories uh the folkloric stories back it up with the creatures acting very much in the same way. So gifting, I think, is is a form of spirit offering. Mm, and it strikes me that creating a little garden for a Bigfoot could potentially have as much ritual involved in it as, as the other form of gifting that you just described. Oh, sure. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like Josh has this wonderful about the, the Bigfoot Museum in Georgia, you know, that, that kind mm. of applies too. Yeah, it's it's interesting. Uh, there's a really surprisingly <laughs> surprisingly well appointed uh, Bigfoot museum here in North Georgia, which kind of had a reputation for having sightings over the years. But I've spoken at length with the owner numerous times about how, as soon as he set up uh, his museum, he just was inundated with all these sightings, just people coming forward. And I had a good friend of mine, David Metcalf, who said, you know what happened? He's like, they made a temple to Bigfoot. And if you look at it, it really has all the hallmarks, all marks, all the hallmarks of that. Um, you know, you've got uh, a, a building dedicated to this, let's say spirit in a site of power where, you know, manifestations happen often. Uh, you've got all these sort of artifacts that are housed there. It's a place for, people who believe in this thing to congregate and it's a place for non-believers to convert themselves to the existence of this thing. So it really does seem to share that sort of uh, shape of, of a temple archetype, even though we don't normally think of Bigfoot as anything other than a flesh and blood creature. Mm, yeah, that's, that's really interesting. Josh, I know you wrote, you wrote the chapter talking about the connections between Bigfoot and fairies. And you've written books about the fae before. Would so what would you say are the striking similarities there? Well, I think the thing that really wrote me in um, is 
this <laughs> propensity to braid horses' manes that's attributed to Bigfoot. Um, that was something that was ascribed to any number of old world entities, fairies, witches, even some uh, even some sort of pagan gods and goddesses would supposedly steal into stables at night and braid horses. And when that same phenomena manifests in the Americas, regardless of whether or not there's any real validity for it, you know, I think that a lot of these are just people not combing out their horses' manes overnight. Um, it's interesting to me that that same phenomena is attributed to you know, our cultural boogeyman of Bigfoot. So that was a starting place, but then you start taking it apart and, you know, Lithobole, the throwing of stones is definitely attributed to Bigfoot and all sorts of old world creatures. Um, you've got this real affinity for Bigfoot to be found uh, around or even in, sometimes miles out in some reports, uh, water, which, you know, it, I think was a Sorbonne historian, uh, Claude Lecouteau, who said that you could basically describe fairies as water spirits and you'd be, you know, right 90% of the time. In terms of their proximity um so you've got these things then you also have this interesting and pernicious uh, set of descriptions of sort of the brownie variants um uh throughout the throughout the old world of which there are numerous but almost all of them are described as being you know uh hair covered and basically looking like sort of a man monkey now of course the biggest stumbling block for people is oh you know i thought fairies were short but you know, fairies encompass a broad spectrum of uh, of different sort of mythological creatures like, you know, ogres, trolls, giants, uh, mermaids, etc. All fall under this fairy umbrella. So uh, the height of Bigfoot shouldn't really be an impediment to, to, com to comparison, especially when you compare the fact that uh, both fairies and old world wild men were notorious size and shapeshifters. Um, so if you sort of start viewing the Bigfoot through this wild man archetype, it all sort of starts to make a little bit more sense. And, uh, you know, just ahead, uh, Tim off of the pass, because I know I either wait for him to say it or I say it. Um, just because we, we talk about archetypes and mythology doesn't mean we, that we don't think that there is something very real, objectively real uh, to all these phenomena. It's just that I think that uh, I personally think that it, it's a little bit more imaginal than than we would like to admit. Um, there's something about this that takes our existing cultural constructs and uses that to sort of manifest itself in our reality, in my opinion. Right. Okay. Yeah. Could that be connected to smells that Bigfoot could be quite malodorous? Um, and I know, and I know that Josh, you've written a book about supernatural smells. So why, why do you think that there's that smell? Yeah, you know, I, I, looking back on volume one of Where the Footprints End, I'm kind of like, maybe I should have fleshed out the whole smell thing a little bit more. But like you said, I did, I just, I was so tired of writing about it. <laughs> um, you know, a lot of people say that Bigfoot smells horrible because of uh, sort of scent glands that are released as a defense mechanism. Uh, there is a little bit of a, of a, uh, of a precedent for that in primates, but not a strong precedent, um, especially for, you know, consciously reduced, uh, consciously released, uh, uh, scent glands. Um, but it's interesting. One of the most common smells that you find across all the paranormal and especially in Bigfoot reports is this smell of hydrogen sulfide, which is a uh, gas that occurs whenever you have decomposition of organic matter in the absence of oxygen. That's why we associate it with, with rotten eggs. Um, and you'll find that, you know, in exorcisms and demonic possession and ghost stories and alien abductions and ufo stories and you can kind of find some hints of it um in some fairy folklore as well there's a story um from a priest uh in antiquity i can't, I can't really remember exactly when but he described uh the smell of um of a fairy as similar to uh gases emerging from the earth so if you sort of reinterpret that in some ways it seems like he that this particular priest was describing some variant of a sulfur compound which i go into at length in uh at length in the brimstone deceit which is that book about smells um so i mean yeah it's just another it's just another check mark that really unites all these different things under this singular paranormal umbrella that bigfoot is also a part of yeah so do you think that it's like when bigfoot manifests physically it's literally made out of some sort of dead material you know it's interesting um in controlled circumstances hydrogen sulfide can actually cause suspended animation which would be a de facto alternate 
uh, form of consciousness. I don't know. I think it has something to do with manifestation and uh, the way that these things pop in and out of our reality is sort of the idea that I'm on now. Um, it, uh, you know, I, I've had some other people, including Soraya Azkath, uh, host of Where Did the Road Go, that Tim mentioned earlier, say that it really seems like a lot of things in the paranormal are about entropy, more or less. And what if these things, you know, manifest and as they exist in our reality, they sort of have a, a half-life of how long they can exist here. And over the course of that, something about that process releases uh, these odors that are generally regarded as unpleasant. I don't know. Uh, it's all it's all really speculative. I will say that I'm not quite on board with uh, stories of Bigfoot using scent glands to release this hydrogen sulfide smell. <laughs> There's some other cases that you can find where Bigfoot releases smells that are more like skunks or more like uh, the smell of burning rubber which would be attributable to scent glands on obviously skunks, but also um, also some gorillas uh, have an ability to release sort of a smell when they're a little bit frightened or agitated. Those I'll give a little bit more credit to, but the number of people who report this rotten egg odor is, I would say, if not a majority of cases where smells reported, certainly a plurality of cases. And that I just don't really see any uh, biological basis for in any of the zoological literature that I've surveyed. Mm. I mean... This is probably a question I should have asked right at the beginning of the interview, but why do you think Bigfoot manifests the way it does, in the form it does? There's an idea that we play with. Um, so my other book, um, I, I kind of got into this idea a little bit. You know, like uh, my journey with Bigfoot has been a journey, like many people, it's where you, you start out, I think, thinking this is a, an undiscovered primate or a, a relic hominid or something entirely natural. And then as I'm confronted with all this weird stuff, um, my opinion gradually changes. But uh, I wrote a, a, you know, a couple books. I'm going to continue writing these books that are compilations of old newspaper reports of uh, which seemed to be Bigfoot from the 1800s, early 1900s. And they called them wild men back then. Uh, the, um, the, the form of the wild man, you know, changes. And, and I would try to explain that away in, in the other books. Again, I, you know, I'm, I'm on this journey. And at this point, I'm, I'm trying to figure out, like, why are they reporting so many of these old reports, for instance, have them enclosed, you know, in tattered clothes or carrying a rusty musket that won't fire and having these, these sort of uh, remnant attributes of, of, uh, of society. Uh, and, at the time, I said, well, I think maybe maybe it's this kind of prudish uh, newspaper editors in the Victorian age who, who couldn't stand the idea of a naked wild man running around. So they, they you know, kind of threw clothes on them. Said, so, you know, instead of saying there's a naked man running, hairy man running around, there's, like, there's a hairy man running around in tattered clothes. You know, it was a Victorian prudishness. And then we started playing with this idea of, of the wild man archetype. And we started looking at it and it kind of, really seems to change over times and and in in these medieval stories these these wild men are kind of wise and they're they're almost like wizards of the woods and uh, you know moving forward into these these historical newspaper reports that I've collected they're almost like this this in between you know they're 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 they still have these remnants of of uh, of humanity but they're they're definitely you know wild hairy creatures and then we move to modern day and there are these very wild, giant, you know, completely hairy things that are, that are very savage and, and uh, no, no uh, trappings of, of our, you know, human society left on them. And if they are some kind of uh, archetype, if they are, you know, some kind of, uh, if they are reactive in some way to, to, you know, culture, perhaps as, we get further away from nature and and more dependent upon technology by necessity our wild man gets wilder and uh, so we have this you know the, these these wizened uh, wizards of the woods in the medieval times and then there are these kind of like uh you know wild woodsmen of uh in the victorian age and then until we finally get to modern times where we have this very very wild uh very savage uh, you know, gorilla-like wild man that, that is Bigfoot. 
you know, I'm not saying that's definitely the case, but it's certainly an idea we play with. And, and I, you know, it's certainly one I, I find very appealing. I, I, without speaking for Josh, I think he does as well. Oh, certainly. I mean, the way that these things are so context and cultural dependent, it's almost like you can view that Bigfoot thing as, you know, an inversion of the UFO thing from, you know, weather balloons from Magonia to, to steampunk airships to Art Deco flying saucers to large black triangles over Belgium and nowadays, uh, you know, more along the lines of these plasmoids, these plasma balls in the air. Not to say that these things haven't been sighted earlier than their sort of, uh, their cue. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, it, it seems like the, uh, the UFO archetype is evolving and the wild man archetype has, has devolved since, since antiquity. Hmm. I know that in really ancient writings, like the Epic of Gilgamesh, Enkidu is a, a wild man. And I think in that epic as well, Enkidu and Gilgamesh eventually they go into the forest to fight a, a, a monster that lives at the heart of the forest. So like you say, these are the archetypal figures that have existed across mythology, haven't they? Oh, yeah. Well, yeah, yeah. I, I, I mean, I, is, is very... Oh, sorry. Go ahead, Tim. Oh, I was just going to say that, that, you know, I'm sure there's a culture that doesn't have a wild man out there, but I haven't run across it yet. It's, <laughs> every culture has a wild man of some form that, you know, lives in the wilderness beside them, whether that's the desert, the mountains, the forest, the, even the sea. There's a, Josh has a, a lot of uh, uh, aquatic wild man stories. Yeah, the wild men that live at the bottom of lakes. I mean, uh, it's it's one of those things where every culture has fairies, witches, and wild men. Uh, and I think that uh, the, the Bigfoot phenomena is just sort of an expression of ours, as, at least as Americans. I mean, I know that there's some, <laughs> there's some British Bigfoot sightings, which we, you know, touch upon here and there throughout both volumes. Um, but that's when you talk about a really tenuous case for, for something being a large extant hominid uh, in the British Isles. I mean, I just can't see that happening given the sheer square mileage of, of wilderness that's left there or not left there. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, there have been reports of Bigfoot sightings 20 miles outside of London. So <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. like an urban, urban Bigfoot. But yeah, um, I completely agree. Um, they are really interesting, but I think the, the research that you guys have been doing uh, offers a, a better way of looking at that kind of phenomenon. Like you were saying, Tim, isn't, there's no reason not to believe these people, but it's just trying to find a, the best context to sort of explain them. Yeah, and it's it's really hard because I think, you know, a, a certain number of people expect us at some point in this book, you know, maybe in the last chapter, volume two, they expect us to go. And therefore, Bigfoot is an interdimensional creature, interdimensional creature <laughs> or, or, you know, came from the planet Xenon, you know, via flying saucers or or something like that. And and you're, you're not going to find that in, in either of these two volumes. Uh, you have to be willing to sit with the mystery and... You, that doesn't mean you can't talk about it or explore it or uh, or try to understand it. But uh, there's there's nowhere where we're going to tell you what we think Bigfoot is, other than it's a big hairy thing that's also very very weird. Right? Yeah. Cool. And and yeah, I mean, people seem to be very uncomfortable, you know, si sitting with that. I mean, I think if there's a central thesis to the book, it's just that Bigfoot is strange and and. And the central thesis is that while real, these encounters don't seem to be describing a large uh, relic hominid. And of course, the thing that people seem to also really grapple with the most is, you know, trying to push back against our this idea by saying, well, why does it leave footprints? Why does it leave scat? Why does it leave blood? Why does it leave hair? And, you know, my, my retort time and again is that, you know, psi phenomena is completely intangible, yet seems to, in laboratory co conditions... Uh, to a degree that I think it should be widely accepted by now, can actually have an impact upon reality. So why not something else? You know, one of the primary ways that ghost hunters before, you know, we got all this fancy technology used to catalog hauntings was by measuring the interaction with the physical environment. So handprints on mirrors and, you know, footprints spread in talcum powder on the floor. And so I think if, if you start looking at the Bigfoot phenomena through that lens, uh, it all is a little bit easier pill to swallow. Hmm. Do you think that this phenomena, is it mostly co-created? 
does it require a person for it to manifest or do these things exist separate from us are they and they're just things that we can encounter if if a bigfoot yells in the wood and no one is around to hear it (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah um i i would say that whatever it is is always there but hmm. the, the the shape that it takes is compl- is largely dependent upon us. I don't know how Timothy feels about that. Yeah, I, I, I think so. I think, you know, I, I think the, the manifested Bigfoot is the rarest form of the phenomenon, if that, if that makes any sense. And that what people encounter with these Class B poltergeist-like things may in fact be Bigfoot but you know as as a creature is not seen um you know i it just it just seems like it's very very rare to see a creature but it's it's far less rare to have these other effects these gifting exchanges uh for instance these you know the the class b kind of poltergeist like encounters so i i do think it's it's always there it it, it answers i guess in my mind it sort of answers to the uh the same thing that we we would in the past call you know nature spirits or or forest spirit or something like that um but how it manifests may in fact be be a you know culturally uh influenced and be uh, individually influenced so there there is a a manner of co-creation there but not it's not entirely uh co-created if that makes any sense well, and hmm. and I would say the same thing with you know the the fairy phenomena. I mean, I, I will I will the hill that I will die on is that uh, you know the David Politis missing four one one stuff and the alien abduction experience are have all been described very accurately in you know the bodies of fairy folklore from both the old and new world. But what I won't say is that it is all fairies. You know, I think that they're all trying to describe some sort of other um, some sort of other intelligence, but everybody sort of putting their own interpretation, their own spin on it. Hmm. I mean, I know there's that famous correspondence where you, you compare a map of uh, the cave systems in America and like the heat map for disappearances from missing 411 and they, they seem pretty similar. I mean... Yeah, you map that onto, you can map that onto population and waterfall as well and Bigfoot sightings. I mean, it's, it's almost sort of a where people are pareidolia thing, at least to me. I mean, I think it's interesting. And I think Mm. that, you know, all these things definitely do have an underground component to them. I mean, fairies live underground. Supposedly they're underground alien bases. Um, Bigfoot are often seen around abandoned mines and sometimes purported to live underground. Um, You know, I think that that is definitely part of the the archetypal structure of this. But as far as like being, oh, that's why people are being taken into caves. I just, I have a little bit, I don't quite see that evidence manifesting itself yet. Mm, yeah, I know what you mean. I, again, in in the Secret Commonwealth, Robert Kirk talks about subterraneans, but I'm not sure if he means underground. I'm, I'm not sure if he's using the, the mm-hmm. term subterranean to mean in a different realm rather than below ground. I mean, I, I mean, if we are talking sort of back to your other point about you know if there's if Bigfoot's in the forest and no one's there to hear it, does it actually make a sound? Um, you know, what if in terms of underground, we're dealing with something, you know, in dealing with the shadow self, the subconscious, the unconscious versus, you know, the higher self or the, or the ego, or, you know, what if this is really just a play between it and ego? And, and the reason that these things seem so liminal seem to be sort of guardians of the threshold is because they're sort of just peeking up from that aspect of ourselves. I don't know, but it seems like the underground would be a pretty good metaphor to encompass that concept. If you didn't Absolutely. have another way to... Yeah. You know, Bigfoot in general, the, the the other, the paranormal, definitely likes to play with symbols. You know, uh, there's no shortage of of, of symbols uh, throughout these encounters and so forth. Theater, and, yeah. Yeah, exactly. What a what a wonderful, uh, you know, sort of, like you said, metaphor or symbol that is. Like, yeah, they, they're coming from underground. Do you think that from your own research and experience, past cultures had a better way of contextualizing this phenomenon and people like yourself with writing books like this it's an opportunity to educate people now yes i, <laughs> I do <laughs> i i mean i might push a little bit back on that with me it's more like i don't know that they they understood it any better than we do but they accepted it as part mm. of 
of the natural world as part of of life. right you know um i don't know that they you, you know uh a lot of uh for example a lot of the the flesh and blood bigfoot people they they love to point out that how many you know native american tribes had names for you know what what it what seems to be bigfoot creatures but for big hairy things that lived in the woods and this is true but then they avoid to talk about how many of them also said that these are supernatural creatures in one form or another or or if they said they weren't supernatural they basically they certainly had supernatural powers or or powers beyond what what uh, you know humans do so you know i it's it's hard to say and then you know again uh, the other side of that is some tribes absolutely say they're they're just normal they're just another form of hairy person you know is that there so they don't all agree you, you know so so who's right and who's not you know i i don't necessarily think that that these old cultures had the answers but they certainly talked about this stuff as being part of the natural world and, and part of what is around us. And, uh, you know, they were here for not just native Americans, but all these, all these cultures, we talk about European cultures that talk about wild men and stuff, you know, they have thousands of years of experience with this beyond ours. So certainly, uh, some of their points on how to deal with this should, should be listened to and respected and, and, uh, taken into consideration. Absolutely. But I don't know if they knew any better that what they were dealing with than, than we do. And and to sort of to sort of further put a pin in that, um, I think Tim and I both want Bigfoot to be flesh and blood in some ways. Like, I mean, it would it would be so nice to 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 be you know to to have that sort of vindication and that sort of uh, validation, and to actually have some concrete mysteries. I just don't think I just don't see it in the often really. Mm, yeah. So we've got a little bit of time left, and I can't do an episode about Bigfoot with you guys. And not ask you about the Patterson Gimlin film and what you think about it. So, yeah, what do you guys think about that? Was it real? You, you want me to do my rant, Josh, or you want to go first? I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to throw it out. Somebody that I know, somebody that I heard one time, uh, said something that perfectly sums up my feelings on it. Um, it's it's a remarkable film. Full stop. It's either a remarkable uh, documentation of the Bigfoot phenomena, or it is the world's most remarkable enduring ho- uh, hoax. And that's sort of where I, I stand on it. I, mean, I don't, don't want to say I'm agnostic about it. I tend to think that it's showing something real. But at the same time, I think that anyone who really gets into these topics begins to realize quickly that these things, if they don't want to be photographed, they just aren't photographed. So that's that, that actually is what throws it more into question for me personally than, you know, this objective oh is it real does you know does the length of the stride match something a man could do etc cetera, etc cetera. i mean certainly uh the number of people that have come out claiming that they were involved actually makes me believe it's more authentic rather than less because there's just too many people trying to profit off of it it's just it just it's sort of muddy the waters but that's sort of where i stand on the the the, the pg film uh tim <laughs> tim has tim has some better insight than i do so we can all agree that this film shows something. It's, it's either a man in a costume or a creature. There's no, nothing in between. It's one of those two things. I'm with Josh. I think it shows something, you know, based purely on on monkey suit technology at the time. They just didn't have the, the, the technology to do what appears in that in that film. So I, I tend to think it shows something real. However, the Patterson Gimlin film is just this wonderful emblem for the Bigfoot phenomena in general uh, because it's a piece of evidence that a is, is uh, you can line experts up on both sides. You can line experts up to say it's real and it, or it's fake. You can get, you know, both people from, uh, from, you know, people who specialize in primate locomotion to, you know, special effects artists. You can get people to say it's real. You can get people to say it's fake. The original film of the Patterson Gimlin film, it's gone. We have copies of it, but the original film canister has disappeared. No one knows where it is. There are people who claim it's in some lawyer's office. There are people who claim it's, you know, one of the interested parties. And there's a, if, if you're interested in like sort of drama in the Bigfoot world, it's, it's a very, very interesting story where all these, you know, sort of quote unquote, big names in Bigfootery, like claim to have a, some sort of stake in this film. 
Uh, but the, the fact remains that, that, you know, no one knows where it is. Some guy recently claimed that, that he had it, but he won't produce it. <laughs> he won't produce the original film. So if you're not willing to produce it, then it's, it's you know, for all intents and purposes, it's, it's gone. It's, no one knows where it is. The uh, about I think about a decade ago, a little more than a decade ago, a name man, a man named Bob Hieronymus came forward and said, no, I was the guy in the suit. Uh, it was me. It was a hoax. I, I, I had the suit. And in this just beautiful twist uh, of, of the way Bigfoot tends to go, he has lost this suit. Now, if he had this suit, he could sell it on eBay for a million dollars. He could, the, the Smithsonian uh, has Archie Bunker's chair, you know, in this, I'm <laughs> sure they'd love this, this suit in this very famous hoax. Uh, you, you know, this suit would be worth an incredible amount of money. And this guy could, could uh, really, really, you know, do something with this, but uh, the suit mysteriously, if there ever was one has gone missing. It's, it's, it was either in his mom's attic or in a, in a car, in the trunk of a car he sold or something, something like this. So uh, just this beautiful representation of the, the Bigfoot uh, phenomena as whole as a whole, there is uh, there's no film, there, there's no original film and there's no original suit. So we're left with this uh, in limbo uh, in terms of this film. And, and uh, I love it uh, just for that reason. It's the perfect symbol of the Bigfoot phenomenon. Mm, definitely. So we've been talking about what's in volume one, which is folklore. What's to come in volume two of this book series? Well, first of all, if you like the cover to volume one, wait till you see the cover to volume two. That's <laughs> cool. <laughs> but uh, no, uh, volume one we called folklore and volume two we called evidence. And uh, either Josh or I have said this a million times that there is evidence in volume one and there is folklore in volume two. But uh, volume two tends to focus more on Bigfoot itself. And so, so volume one was Bigfoot through the lens of fairies and through the lens of, of, uh, you know, ghosts and witches and, and illustrating how it was connected to these women in white spirits and so forth. Volume two, just the, like we get into Bigfoot. Like this is these, this is Bigfoot with weird lights. This is Bigfoot, uh, with, um, uh, altered states of consciousness. This is Bigfoot with, you know, all these different strange things. So it's, it's less of a Bigfoot filtered through folklore kind of thing and more of a, you know, let's get down to the, the Bigfoot itself. Yeah. Volume two actually uh, features the eponymous uh, ending, ending disappearing trackways. So we've got the, uh, you know, the trackways that, dis- that end uh, anomalous footprints and the number of, you know, toes that don't seem to line up with what we know about primate anatomy disappearing evidence um you know the the this trickster phenomena um just sort sort of through that patrick not patrick harper but that uh, george p hansen lens um and then you know uh, ufos uh, volume one talks about bigfoot similarities with the alien abduction experience and bigfoot seen inside ufos but volume two is all about bigfoot seen outside or in close proximity to ufos uh and then we wrap it up with two uh two case studies so just of, of these these cases that seem to really combine a lot of these different things into one weird, weird soup. Excellent. Well, I'm really enjoying volume one and uh, yeah, can't wait for volume two. We can't either, can we? Tim? <laughs> no, no. If all goes well, we're, we're a little bit dependent upon, you know, when people can get us proofs and so forth. And the volume one was kind of right at the beginning of of uh, the, the sort of COVID pandemic thing and and things were kind of gummed up and and things were taking a little longer so it had some delays my hope is that that there's no delays and if that's the case we you should be seeing it before the end of the year uh hopefully in time for christmas here oh yeah it would be a great christmas present cool well tim and josh thank you so much for being guests on the podcast oh thanks for having us yeah it was really enjoyable thank you so much if people want to find out more about yourselves and how to get the books, how best do they do that? You can find me at strangefamiliars.com. Strange Familiars is my podcast, but all of the contact information there goes right to me. So if you want to contact me, you can find me there. Uh, if, if you do like my artwork, I just released a book of my illustrations of uh, paranormal subjects called Apparitions. And uh, that, unfortunately, is, is at this moment not on Amazon, so you have to come to me directly to get that. But again, strangefamiliars.com will uh, point you right to me. 
And I can be found at joshuacutchin.com, J-O-S-H-U-A-C-U-T-C-H-I-N.com. And uh, if you follow one of these two outlets, you'll certainly know when Volume 2 drops. Uh, Tim and I both have uh, individual copies that we can sign and send. Um, and Although we are separated by about, I guess it would probably be about, what, a 14-hour car trip? Yeah. <laughs> um, so we, we, we don't have the opportunity to sign and send them together right now. Uh, we're hoping to remedy that for Volume 2. Or if you want to, you know, get a copy from Tim signed and then mail it to me, then you can, you're can you more than welcome to do that. But uh, right now you have to choose your favorite author. <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant. Well, I'll make sure to put all that info in the show notes. Thank you. And and of course, everything's available. Or the regular books are available on Amazon as well. Cool. Cool. Yeah. Thank you so much, guys. Oh, thank you. Our pleasure. Thanks so much. One of the great things about Tim and Josh's book is in its revealing how interconnected a lot of paranormal phenomena are. It's easier to try and understand something if you first circumscribe it within a singular explanation, which we've seen happen in cryptozoology and ufology but that also means potentially leaving out a lot of relevant information, which can result in making large leaps of logic to defend the more seemingly rational theories. Like Tim mentioned in the interview, past cultures didn't necessarily understand these things better than we do now, but they were more accepting of the unknown, and maybe that in itself is part of truly engaging with the paranormal. I still find myself realising that, I suppose because there is a lot of mystery in researching these subjects, and part of the allure of that is in the solving. We really only scratch the surface of what is covered in the book in the interview, so I heartily recommend getting hold of a copy. Tim also co-hosts the wonderful Strange Familiars podcast with his wife Alison, and both he and Josh have guested on shows such as Where Did the Road Go and Conspiranormal, which are both excellent. Well, that's all for now. I hope you liked this episode. If you did, please consider rating and reviewing the podcast wherever you listen, also sharing it on social media and following the show on Twitter really help it to grow and find new listeners. You can find some of the sphere on Twitter at spherical underscore pod and on most of the well-known podcast platforms. You can now also donate to the podcast via Ko-fi. The support of listeners like yourself will be a huge help in keeping it going and for the cost of a cup of coffee, you can be part of that. Some other sphere will always be free to listen to though. If you'd like to get in touch with me at SphereHQ, please email someothersphere at gmail.com. It'd be lovely to hear from you. Until next time, take care of yourselves and thank you very much for listening.